Hey friends, welcome to season two of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are exploring practical insight about racial justice and social change. We're your hosts. I'm Andre Henry. And I am Alicia T. Crosby. Hey, everybody. We are super pumped to be back with you for another season. And on our season opener, we have Drumroll, Bree, <laughs> Newsom, Bass. <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. Wild. So, <laughs> so many of y'all have heard of Brie. Some of you, this will be your first time getting to know her, but she is incredibly dope. Brie is an artist who drew national attention in 2015 when she climbed the flagpole in front of the South Carolina Capitol building and removed a Confederate battle flag that was originally raised in 1961 as a racist statement of opposition to the civil rights movement and lunch counter sit-ins occurring at the time. Calling Brie an artist is only talking about part of what Brie does. She is like this incredible activist, writer, producer, consultant, you name it, she does it. Brie is hella dope. Yeah. And we had her on the podcast, like (laughs) initially, not because she had something to promote at the time or whatever, but just because we were just like, yeah, Brie is brilliant. And I'm sure she's thinking about something. So we need to talk to her. (laughs) You know, shoot (laughs) her. The end. Point blank period. That is all. I think when when we sent her the message, we were like, uh, just, you know, come and talk about whatever's on your mind. <laughs> whatever you want, Brie. Like, legit, like, Brie is one of those people, like, I know this is the truth for Dre, so I will um, speak fresh. You can't do that. Um, <laughs> but Brie is one of those people whose voices that I personally make sure that I listen to and I listen to at all times. And so she's like at the top of all of my news feeds on social media, because like when she speaks, she's speaking and there's something worth listening to. Yeah, she is just she's phenomenal. She's a truth teller. She's badass. And you're going to find out when we kick it to our interview with her, why it is that both Andre and I value her so much as a human, but also as someone who is deeply involved and deeply cares about movement here in the U.S. right now. But before we get to that interview with Bree, we actually have a new segment that we want to share with you all. So in keeping with Hope and Hard Pills, we actually have something new this go round called Hope Notes. And later in the show, we'll introduce Hard Pills. But the Hope Notes segment, actually both of these segments um, are going to help us do the crucial work of finding joy and also sharing what concerns us in the, the midst of working for racial justice and social change. Yeah, ahead of getting into our conversation with Bree, we want to talk about what's given us hope today. So yeah, Dre, what's today? Like when you think about what's happening in the world, what's something giving you hope? Yeah, that's a great question considering like we're in the midst of a global anti-racist movement right now. And um, I mean, I it does make me hopeful that so many people are activated, you know? Um, mm-hmm. You know, even though we wish that we didn't need, we didn't need these movements for racial justice. It's really... Uh, it's really hopeful for me to see so many people that for the first time are hitting the streets who are being activated in whatever way is appropriate to them, whether that's writing letters or, or, or whatnot. Um, Especially since I'm in Pasadena, California right now um, where I've called home for many years now. And I saw like the biggest mass protests in Pasadena uh, this past week. Mm. 
in Pasadena history. Huge, really huge caravan, hundreds of people, just this line, this endless line of cars blocking the streets mm. in Pasadena yes. to protest the the murder of uh, Anthony McLean, who was shot in the back mm. by Pasadena police. So, um, again, like, I hate that, I hate that we need to do these things, but, uh, seeing so many people in the streets and stuff that like, I kind of read about in books, right? Like yeah. so the opportunity to be present and to help organize some of that mm-hmm. is like really, really great. What about you? One, I am encouraged by what you just shared. Like, I didn't realize that the caravan and like the protest was like the, the largest one out there. Like, I didn't, I didn't realize that was the case. So Wow. (laughs) I think my hope note this week is coming from the fact um, that a friend of mine sent me a present. So I've got this awesome friend who is a pastor and someone who commits to uh, racial justice within her her church denomination. Her name's Tahina. Mm -hmm. And yesterday, Tahina sent me and my partner, Mass. So one of the things that she's been doing over the course of coronavirus, um, like many others, is trying to figure out like what she could do for the people that she loves around her. And so she knows how to sew. And so she's been sewing masks. Um, And yeah, I got mine in the mail yesterday. And so um, the reason why it's my hope note this week, um, aside from the fact that I think Tahina um, is um, Mm kick-ass, is the fact that I'm reminded of all the small ways that people are caring for one another. And she made sure that not only did she include a mask for me, but she also included um, a a mask for my fiance. And so Hmm. every time I wear it, I can be reminded of not just like her love for me as a friend, but also like the love that people have for one another and how they're doing small things, practical things um, to care for other people in the world. It was just Hmm. a really sweet reminder of it as I like tried on my mask and then saw like my fiance, like, go to work wearing hers this morning. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of other general hope notes from our team um, that we wanted to share with you. One of which is that we have been named in the top 50 racism podcast to follow in 2020 by Feedspot. So shout out Feedspot. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> we weren't expecting it. Yeah. 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 That's really, that's really dope. I was, I didn't, <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that's that's cool. Like, thanks, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> we just do this because we like each other. And it's true. we like y'all. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, the, the other general team hope note is that you can get involved in this too. Mm-hmm. We have been thinking as a team, like Andre, myself, Nandi, Ross, like so many others, like who you'll hear in the air this season and who work behind the scenes. We've been thinking about like, how can we get our listeners more involved? And one of the things is we want to invite you to share your hope notes and your hard pills. And you'll be able to do that um, really after listening to any show Um, and you'll you'll do so by um, either linking us on social media or using the hashtag HHP podcast. So Hope and Hard Pills podcast, it's hashtag HHP podcast. You can share hope notes. You can share hard pills. Maybe that's a picture. Maybe it's a quotation. I don't know, but whatever your hope notes and hard pills are, you'll be able to share them and we'll be able to join together in community a little bit more fully this go around. With all of that said, I think it's time for us to get into our conversation with Bree. Let's do it.
Bree. Hi, Andre. How are you? I'm doing so good. Uh, how are you doing? Doing well. I'm like super excited that you decided to be on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned when I emailed you about this conversation, for a lot of people, I know exactly what I want to talk to them about. Like they wrote a book. I want to talk to them about it. Or they said this thing in an interview and I want to ask some more questions about it. But in this case, I was just like, Brie Newsom Bass has amazing things to say on Twitter. And we just want to hear whatever she is on her mind lately. <laughs> <laughs> so what have, why don't we start with what have you been up to lately? Um, so as a, as an organizer, in terms of like, you know, my my advocacy, I guess, I'm really focused on the housing issue in Charlotte specifically Mm -hmm. the issue of displacement. So we have in Charlotte, like many Southern cities, a history of segregation. We have highly segregated neighborhoods by race and economic status. Um, The city is now experiencing kind of like a development boom. And so Mm -hmm. areas of the city that have been economically depressed are now, you know, prime real estate, uh, gentrification. I mean, many cities around the nation are experiencing the same phenomenon. Um, And because there's such a lack of affordable housing for folks, the result is that entire communities are being displaced from the city. And of course, these are predominantly historically black communities um, Mm -hmm. that are are now being in the past. These communities have been displaced from one part of the city to another part of the city. Now people are being pushed completely out of the city because there's no affordable housing. So um And I I just fundamentally believe that housing is a human right. I mean, that's just one of those things that is a basic necessity. And I think Mm -hmm. to have any kind of economic structure where people are not able to secure a basic need like housing is an injustice. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's kind of where, you know, in terms of my work, um, where I am focused in. But I also just really believe that we have to shift power in a way that is more, uh, grants more power to the people, basically. Um, you know, it, it, people say all the time how our politics is broken. You know, it's almost like a, a cliche term, um, but it's really kind of true. I mean, we, we have just really gotten to a point where there is so much um, money, <laughs> particularly mm. at the top. And there's just such a disconnect between the you know lived experiences of everyday people and the political process. And then people wonder why there isn't more participation. Um, yeah. A part of it is precisely because of that huge disconnect. You know, I've, I've done electoral work where, mm-hmm. you know, my job was to go out with the clipboard and ask people, you know, what are the issues mm-hmm. that are important to you? You know, turning people out to vote. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times the issues that are important to people are not even on the ballot. You know, it's not even a part of the discussion. And right. um, I mean, many people have, have spoken to this very issue, but too often you know, the, the process looks like we just show up and, and tell people to vote, you know, in November. And there's, there's no process like in the months leading up to that, where we are engaging people around, well, what issues actually matter to you, you know, or I'm even explaining why it is important, you know, how does voting fit into all of this other, um, you know, process and structure that you're coming up against. We don't do that work and then expect people to show up to vote. Yes. You know, I've been asking a lot of questions of different folks. And I have some friends that work in, you know, maybe they're a city manager somewhere or they work um, on Capitol Hill for a senator or something like that. And I wonder what you think about this. Cause one of my friends, we were talking about, you know, racism, you know, wh- these other issues. And he was very much convinced that like the only thing that we need to do 
is vote. And I wonder, what do you think about that? Like, is your faith in the political system, is it that high or what do you think? No, absolutely not. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Um, So no, my faith in the political system is not that high. But I also don't think that really describes how our political system is supposed to work, even on the best of days and in the best scenarios. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I and I've said this repeatedly. I, I run into this a lot. You have people who say, you know, vote. That's all you have to do. Vote, vote, vote. I voted. I've done enough. I did my part. I voted. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have other folks who say voting doesn't make a difference. You know, I have voted. Nothing changes. So I'm not going to vote. It doesn't matter. Both of those perspectives are problematic. Um, The first one is is problematic because it's never going to be enough to just vote. Um, You know, voting is just one part of the democratic process. Um, It's an important part of the democratic democratic process, but it's actually been um, diluted of its power, deliberately diluted of its power, um, even more so in recent years. I mean, there are studies Mm -hmm. that have shown that the way that the elected officials are making decisions and voting is not corresponding to what the people actually want. I mean, the, the gun debate is probably one of the most clear examples of that because it's very rare that you have 90% of Americans kind of being in agreement on something and you can't get Mm -hmm. any movement on it in Congress. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of shows how through, you know, the a, a number of things, the manipulations around voter suppression, uh-huh. um, the manipulations around how our districts are drawn so that even when people show up to vote, like, for instance, in North Carolina, the mm-hmm. Republicans here have so gerrymandered and rigged our districts that even when we show up to vote, the way that we vote is not reflected in how we are represented in Congress or at the state level. So it's not going to be enough to just vote. It's never been enough to just vote. We also have to, you know, pressure our politicians. We have to protest. You know, I'm constantly driving home to people how protest is a vital part of democracy. It's not that you ever reach a point where protest is not necessary. And it drives (laughs) me crazy when people always frame it that way. They're like, okay, well, we protested for a while. Now we're moving past protesting. I'm like, you never move past (laughs) protesting. Like that's one of the main things that, you know, when they founded the democracy, um, you know, giving people freedom of speech and the right to assembly, they did that because they recognize that's a vital part of how you have a functioning democracy. Um, So that's the first one. The second one, when people say, you know, voting doesn't matter, so don't vote at all. That's also, you know, problematic, highly problematic and dangerous because clearly Mm -hmm. voting does have an impact. And if it didn't have an impact, they wouldn't put so much effort into trying to keep us from voting. Um, We want the vote to have more power than it does, but Mm -hmm. we don't, we certainly don't get there by not participating. Not participating allows you to be shut out even more. And the thing that I'm constantly driving home to people is you're not opting out of anything. That's what's important to understand. By not voting, it's not that you are opting out of the system because you don't have to vote. Just because you didn't vote doesn't mean that you don't have to pay taxes. Doesn't mean that they're not taking Mm -hmm. your paycheck and putting it towards, you know, whatever budgetary decisions that they're making. They're just now doing it without your input. Mm-hmm. Right. So so it's I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to get people to understand the role that voting plays within, you know, larger um, the kind of like the, the larger structure of people power, you know, and the, the mm-hmm. not just the role that we 
or the power that we have as citizens, like official citizens of the nation, but also just the power that we have as people. You know, yeah. um, uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of what I do is really trying to empower disempowered people. I think yeah. particularly as as black people and when we look at the history of um, you know, disenfranchisement or, um, around voting, mm-hmm. that is a deliberate process of, of shutting us out of the process, basically, you know, right. um, yeah. um, and, and that is key to how they maintained Jim Crow. So, you know, mm-hmm. we, we have to understand the, the interconnectedness of these things while also understanding that voting is not the be all and end of I'll say this last thing on it. Cause I could go on and on. But there's a thing that has really happened since the civil rights movement. I feel where I don't know exactly how this narrative got created, but it, it was kind of like this, this narrative that voting was the be all and end all of the civil rights movement. And so mm. now that we have the voting rights act, which we actually don't have anymore since they've yeah, gutted it right. before it even reached its 50 years. But um, but this idea that since now we are, you know, at least on paper, permitted to vote, that everything has been accomplished. That was never like the, the goal of the civil rights movement was racial equality. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, desegregation. Mm-hmm. It was all of all of these things. And so that's that's also problematic, in my view, for folks to narrow everything to voting right. and put for, forward voting as a solution. Voting is not a solution. Voting is a method of participation. It's not mm-hmm. a solution to anything. Mm-hmm. And we did not vote our way into having voting rights. We had a sustained years long movement of civil disobedience yeah um that resulted in us having the right to vote and it is dangerous for us to think that all we have to do going forward now is to vote especially since they are finding new ways to strip us of voting rights mm, yes i i think you know i graduated from seminary a few years ago and in order to graduate i had to take a beginning hebrew class and um my professor taught us this one word that he said, like, this is a prophet. Every time he tried to explain it to us, he said, like, this is like a prophet is shaking you by the collar and saying, hey, you know, dude. He said, actually, the best translation for the word was dude. Dude, behold, <laughs> kind of thing. And I feel like you're doing that on Twitter a lot. Like, you're trying to get a message across to those of us who are following you and all that. And I wondered... I mean, just to give you kind of a platform for a few minutes and say, like, what are you trying to what are you trying to convey to us, especially about like the upcoming election? Because I feel like you're really putting things in context. What are you trying to get us to hear? Um, I would say so. A, a lot of time what I am doing on Twitter really is trying to disrupt the what I view as like the false dominant narrative, mm-hmm. um, because I think prior to social media, Especially like if you think about what we have been witnessing during the Trump era, I think that prior to social media, we would just kind of see how events were reported on the news and we might watch it and be like, wow, that's crazy. Or maybe I can turn to my friend who's, you know, right next to me and say, are you seeing this? This does not sound like an accurate representation of reality because I understand it. And, you know, my friend might be like, yeah, I agree. But what social media does is it turns it into like this whole living room conversation. You know, it's like the whole world is in the room together and Mm -hmm. we're all saying in real time, no, this is not reality. Like what you were saying, Mm -hmm. you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And so that allows us to to kind of challenge um, particularly the normalization of racism in real time. And 
And people, be, because it is something that we live and breathe every day, but don't talk about it, because it's almost like not acknowledging it is part of the rules of living and breathing it every day. Mm-hmm. People don't necessarily even recognize how deeply embedded it is in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I have I have been particularly kind of outspoken. I know, I know, particularly with the election, (laughs) this cycle, um, I did, I was more openly challenging of Biden's campaign in particular, Uh um, just for, just for a number of reasons, because I see us kind of like falling into this, uh, uh, same pattern of like, as soon as we approach challenging racism in a very real way, people shy away from it. It's very scary to Mm -hmm. people. They don't Mm -hmm. know, you know, well, what's on the other side of, on the other side of that, I think I'll just, you know, fall back into what is comfortable right. without recognizing that what you're calling comfortable is really just white supremacist light. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, when I hear people, um, you know, so Donald, whereas Donald Trump came out and was saying, let's make America great again. He's hearkening back to, you know, like 1950s, you know, kind of imagery and era, um, this era of, you know, white dominance and kind of hegemonic society. Mm-hmm. Uh, the message that I see clearly being communicated from the Biden campaign is, you know, let's make America 2008 again, or just what it was prior to Donald Trump. <laughs> let's just get back to prior to Donald Trump. That's like the clear message. Let's return to normal. Normal is the word that they use a lot is normal. Right. And my whole thing is like, we've got to recognize that normal was when Trayvon Martin happened. Normal right, exactly. was when, you know what I mean? Like this is normal was when, was when they were tear gassing folks in Ferguson. And, mm-hmm. you know, normal was when I had to scale the flagpole and take the Confederate flag down. That was too 2015. Like this is that, that's not, we can't, there's no going back. (laughs) There's no going back as uncomfortable as it's, as as this time period may be for everybody. There is no, there is no going back. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to embrace the discomfort. Like I'm just the kind of person I tend to, I just bear hug discomfort. (laughs) Just (laughs) just give it a bear hug and just hold it. And the longer you hold it, the more it'll be okay. Um, (laughs) Because, because there, there is no, going back for us as a country. We know what's behind us as a country. We have to, we have to look back for, you know, to reconcile with that past, understand what that is and then move forward. I mean, I'm sure you've seen like the, the explosive reaction to the 1619 uh, issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was really interesting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean to see that people just like almost having a meltdown (laughs) <laughs> by, by there being this special issue of a magazine that was really dealing with slavery in this very honest way. And I mean, I think right. that alone tells you when people are talking about let's get back, they're talking about let's go back to this mytho- mythological past that has never existed. Yes. And yes. I think that's I think that's the danger. You know what I mean? Um, in how this plays out now, it may very well be that folks, you know, nominate Biden and then he goes on to be president, but the issues are not going to go away. And so like when I, you know, when I'm on Twitter, I'm just ringing the alarm. Cause I'm like, Hey y'all, like reality is still here. I mean, like right. we can do whatever we want to do, but reality is going to keep on <laughs> being its thing. Like it's not, you know, reality doesn't bend and shape to what we want it to be. Right. Um, it's the same thing with like the white supremacist terrorism. Like you can, you can ignore it if you want to, this is going to be a thing because it is a thing. Like you, you simply trying to will it away and closing your eyes and putting your fingers in your ears doesn't change the reality that we have like many young white men who are armed to the teeth and are very Mm -hmm. much influenced by this white supremacist ideology that Mm -hmm. has been normalized in this era. Um, So, you know, like to me, there's just, I I see more danger and discomfort in 
um, you know, ignoring reality than in dealing with it. And, and yeah. that's kind of how I use my Twitter feed. Mm. What what makes you hopeful about change? I'm hopeful about change because I know it can happen because we've mm-hmm. we've seen the past. I mean, the only reason that I'm not in bondage right now is because of abolitionists and the civil war and the civil rights movement and the struggles of the people who came before me. So I know it's possible. And I think that's also why I feel kind of like a a moral duty and obligation to do what I can now, um, you know, to ensure not only that we maintain the rights that we have, but that we continue to expand rights. So we continue to expand human rights and democracy because we're still not there yet, Mm. you know? Um, um, But I mean, that that really is is what gives me hope. You can't say that it's impossible. We know that it's possible. Right. We know it's possible because we, we've seen it done. Um, I think we've got to move with more urgency, though, because mm-hmm. I think that there are factors in place. Um, again, you know, how I speak to the uh, the nature of reality, not, you know, the, the nature of reality kind of being independent. Um, you know, this climate change situation is is extremely concerning. And that is going to lead to another, you know, layer of of conflict. I mean, it already is resulting in other layers of um, of conflict that we are going to be, you know, running into that then intersect with those same issues of human rights and democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I know that it's possible, but I think we have to I think we have to act with urgency. I don't think we can accept it as an an inevitability. I think that's important to recognize as well, that while it is possible that that change came about because of the enormous sacrifice and effort of the past generations. You know, we have to be willing Mm -hmm. to carry that forward. Right, right. Well, Bri, I thank you so much for being on the show. I always appreciate uh, talking with you and thank you so much for sharing with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So there is so much wisdom present in Bree's work and words. Dre, what's the first thing that pops out for you? I mean, like, there's a lot. (laughs) Well, you know, Bree is, I think, for some people, a radical thinker, right? You know, she just tells it like it is. She tells it like she sees it. And I appreciate our conversation about voting in particular. And she reminds us, that sure, like voting is a power that we have, but it's not the only power that we have. And in some mm-hmm. ways, it may not even be the most, it may not even be the most important power that we have. Mm-hmm. And I just always appreciate her uh, bringing it back to people power, our need mm-hmm. to organize, our need to participate in civil resistance, for sure. Yeah. Now, her her words on voting were, I, I think good would be like an understatement. Mm-hmm. One of the things that concerns me and actually has concerned me like for years, including um, before I end up like, you know, with the politics that I have now is like the whole like vote or die. Um, mm-hmm. That actually used to be a campaign <laughs> back in the early 2000s. It's like, what are y'all doing? Vote or die. Vote or die. P. Diddy, like shimmy shake, like shiny suits. Like that was a thing. That was a thing. Oh, God, wow. it was terrible. It is terrible. Because so much of that rhetoric is still built into what we do. Like we don't have other ways of like pushing back at what's going on in the world mm-hmm. other than voting. Like voting yeah. isn't it. Voting is a piece of the pie. It's not the whole pie. Yeah. And I just was deeply grateful for the way 
I mean, the way that Brie shows up in the world, period. Um, but specifically, like, for just what she shared, like, in her interview, because voting isn't it. Like, it's yeah. part of it, but it isn't wholly it. Yeah. And, like, her words called us back to that reality. There's also, like, this dependency on voting alone, mm-hmm. especially this year. So, like, when we started, like, when we interviewed, and we, when we interviewed Brie, this was before COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, this was before the funny business with the USPS. Mm-hmm. Now, even more than then, <laughs> uh, we need to be aware of the limitations, you know, mm-hmm. of just depending on voting because this president has been really trying to mess with this election, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I've been saying to people, you know, for months now, like, I think it's real cute that y'all just assume that we're going to have a vote <laughs> and that it's going to go through. You. Thank you. Know? you. <laughs> or even if we have it, that people are going to leave. Like, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So there are, this, this is why it's imperative more now more than ever, I think, that we be thinking, yes, we sh- I think that we should vote mm-hmm. because if nothing else, voting has the power to give legitimacy to whomever, you know, takes power after said vote, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is a crucial political power. And so if we all, you know, say, you know, we want this person or that person and and it doesn't go that way, then we at least have kind of like this record. Right. Um, mm-hmm. As I'm saying that, I'm still thinking about the irony of like tr- Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote. And mm-hmm. the electoral college got him in there, but still, it's still good to have even that fact, right? Like mm-hmm. we have that on our side that we know that the majority of the people didn't vote for him. I think that's the power. So, I, I, you know, so I'd still encourage people to vote. But every time we talk about revolution, right? Mm-hmm. We need to we need to do something. We need to. <laughs> Most people respond to my tweets or posts about revolution with "Yeah, vote," and I'm like. Y'all. Ah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, please vote, but I don't know if you can call that a revolution. <laughs> oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can. Yeah. I think also, like, the thing that's actually coming up for me now is like, we're talking about this that I didn't think about um, at first listen or even second listen of this interview. Like, one of the things that Brie actually says towards the end of her interview was speaking about how work done for social change is really happening at the local level. And yeah. so I think that even if we talk about voting, it's like there's all of this energy that's being built up around talking about like our national election that people yeah. are forgetting about stuff that's down ballot. Right, like, exactly. you know, local ordinances, like what's happening with your state reps? Like who are the governors who were putting in the, in the office this go around? Like there are all these like other races to pay attention to for outside sure. of the presidential election. Don't get me wrong. That one is important. For sure. But there are things that like that are affecting like you and your locales. Like you got to vote for judges and, you know, people in county seats. And like when we're looking to like affect change, we can't just be have like eyes on the prize on like national offices that we aren't paying attention to like the things that can make the most immediate change in our day to day lives. Right. Because at the end of the day that those elections are going to affect your life way more than whoever, you know, the next, mm-hmm. you know, than, than, than voting in the president. Way, way more. I mean, like the federal government can pass, like, you know, 
executive orders or, you know, laws, but those take a, like a lot of time mm-hmm. oftentimes. And they're like contentious battles within the Supreme Court over some of the things that happen electorally at the federal level. But what happens at state and like city and county, like those things matter too. And so, I mean, I guess, you know, Bree's words about like organizing happening at the the local level reminds me that voting also happens at the local level and we need to pay attention to who's going to be on those on those ballots. Yeah. I mean, like some people we know is like kind of like national media darlings like AOC. Guess what? AOC has a local seat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like if people in New York want her in office and they have to vote in their elections, like down ballot, right. they can't just be concerned with like if we're voting for for Trump, Pence or Biden, Harris. It's more than that. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, oh, goodness. They're just like, there's so many rich things and, you know, and so many things to think about. Like the, the priest said, it's like, I'm trying to figure out like, where we go next? <laughs> um, like, what's like, oh, gosh, like one of the things that she named, and I think this is a contention that like a lot of people are like dealing with right now, but is thinking about ro- voting as actually harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um. Look, I know that's me. I'm just going to keep it hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I am not enthused about voting this go round, and I am happy for those who can be happy. But the way that my politics are set up, mm-hmm. I'm just like, okay. I mean, I'm gonna do what I have to do. Um, <laughs> kind of felt like this in the last election too. Just going to be uh, keeping on it. Yeah, but voting definitely is a means to harm reduction because when we look at what's happening over the last four years. I mean, if we keeping it really a hundred, if we look into what's happened over the last twelve, really ever. Let, let me just like clean that up. <laughs> We've ever looked at what's happened in a presidential election. Voting is always harm reduction because there are people who have like you know problematic positions, and that doesn't stop us from having to to protest. But we also have to do our part, like here. But I think that one of the things that's like interesting is we we talk about like down ballot, we talk about like voting locally, we talk about voting being a piece of the puzzle, is that voting doesn't actually represent the needs of everybody like in the populace. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't. There are so many people whose like needs and perspectives are are not represented by like what gets on a ballot that I think is like super important for us to remember the power of protest, like remember people yes. power. Yeah. As we approach this election, there are a lot of people who are looking at voting Trump out mm-hmm. as kind of like this return to normal. And, mm-hmm. you know, this might actually be a good place to do this. So, you know, I've seen some uh, black anti-racist leaders posting like some some version of the Democrats have their own make America great again kind of slogan, you know, mm-hmm. Um and but you know Democrats like to kind of use the restoring the soul of America language rather than you know make America great again, which is heavily, heavily like. But both are looking back just, to the past, right? Both are looking yeah. into the past with this nostalgia, saying like we need to just go back to some previous time in America. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like we need to think, we need to start imagining a future that is vastly different from any previous era in America. Facts. <laughs> but it, it raises the question for me, like if Hillary Clinton would have won the 2016 election, like would we have still had like the massive movements that we've seen, you know, um, 
this this year or not just this year, but this this term, this Trump <laughs> Trump's term. And yeah. if Joe Biden is elected, are all the people that came out this year going to go go home and, you know, dust off their hands and say we did it? You know, <laughs> we oh, need to yeah. not do that. We need to not do either of those things. Oh, yeah, we need to not like for sure. I mean, part of the reason. Well, it's not part of the reason like why I answered the last question the way that I did. Like. 2013, if y'all remember, that was underneath the Obama administration. Right. Like I protested like our everybody's beloved president, because even though he's incredibly charismatic and Mm -hmm. has like very playlists, I actually love love following his playlists. That doesn't mean (laughs) that he is above reproach and it doesn't mean that he is not subject to me protesting and, and having issue with the way in which he chooses to govern. Right. And I think that that's something that like is worth holding on to. Like when we think about like, yeah, even if, you know, Biden and Harris make it into the White House, this don't mean our work stops. Right. Right. That's that's another thing I keep reminding people is like the Black Lives Matter movement began under a black president, you Mm -hmm. know. And we have to keep that in mind. And so partly why I said uh, maybe this is a good place to do it is because people got really in their feelings on Twitter about, mm-hmm. <laughs> about, me, sure. retwe- about me retweeting this. And, they sure. just, and some people just come up with the silliest responses. Like if you're saying, like if you point out that folks who are not aligned with the conservative movement or the alt-right movement, like if you point out that the folks who are more liberal or more left-leaning, I'm going to say left-leaning because like, Lots of us are not leftists, mm-hmm. uh, right? It's so, <laughs> so, so to say that, like, yeah, there's this problematic looking back for the non-Trump supporters as well. Like, they want to mm-hmm. say, well, you know, um, uh, well, well, what do you, what do you want? Just to say dismantle America altogether? And I'm like, and i'm like you know it doesn't have to be this binary right like we we all just need to understand that this white uh proclivity to say like well because i'm not a klansman i'm not a racist or because i'm not a southern american i'm not a racist or because i'm not american you know i'm european i'm not a racist mm-hmm. like it has to stop everyone has to stop looking for like the lowest common denominator or the most virulent example of racism that they can think of mm-hmm. to differentiate themselves and just start focusing on doing the work like this is about eradicating the stuff that we've been talking about and yeah. c- come on y'all like not saying don't vote for Joe Biden, like that is, I mean, that's kind of the choice that we have right now um, to get Trump out. But you also have to remember that Joe Biden was, you know, behind the 1994 crime bill. You have to remember that Joe Biden just the other day was talking about how like, what, he said something, he said something that just showed like he's completely inept on the topic of racism. I can't remember what it was. I mean, it could be any number of things. Yeah, it could be so many things. I think, but it was something like, oh, this is our first racist president. That was the one where he said that oh. Trump is our first racist president. You know, Bless him. these are things that you're at least going to, that we're at least going to have to keep on. I mean, this is showing us that the work is going to have to keep on going past the election. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons or like one of the reasons I wonder if people like have 
real issues being able to have these conversations. I can have these conversations honestly about like the revisionism and like the work that they're doing to serve revisionism is because they don't want to have to not only just like talk about the complicity of like of parties and politicians is that they don't want to have to own their own stuff. Yeah. And I think that that's a way of like, of avoiding complicity, like for real, for real. Like if you don't put in the work to speak about the ways in which like politicians not only aren't perfect, but like are problematic, Mm -hmm. then you don't have to like judge the, I don't, I think, I think judge is too strong of a word. You don't have to hold yourself accountable for voting for people without like consciously making certain decisions. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like unconscious voting, a lot lot of unconscious support that people have for things. There's not a lot of like critical engagement and like, it's okay we didn't always like believe the things that we believe like, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. Andre didn't, I didn't Um, other folks who find themselves, you know, more deeply engaged in movement work didn't, but there comes a point in time when you're like, you know what, like I said and did these things and maybe voted in a way um, where I didn't take certain things into uh, account. I thought the voting was the only thing I had to do. I didn't think about like varied forms of protest that I could engage in, right? Like not just being out in the street, but like considering like how it is that I spent my money, what I could, yeah. you know, you know, invest in or divest from, you know, we talked about divestment last season a, a few times, like mm-hmm. these weren't things that people thought about before, but guess what? You get to think about them now. <laughs> you do. Like it's okay. It's okay. But one of the things, Dre, that strikes me um, when we talk about like people not wanting to like talk about complicity is um, the challenge they have with embracing discomfort. So like Brie, one of the things that she said in the episode is that she like embraces discomfort with a bear hug. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you go about embracing your discomfort? Because I think that could be really valuable for folks to hear. Yeah, well... I mean, my journey like into trying to be more active about these things is just it's just lined that way, you know, like it's just Mm -hmm. it's such a part of of the work. So like in this season to be asked this question, I mean, like so I'm organizing with with some friends right now and I'm kind of leading us through this process of building a campaign. Right. Mm-hmm. And me and my friend Lauren, uh, who is going to be doing this nonviolence course with me, she's another like she and I know the most about this process and about the way that the the folks who gave us this process think. And I was leading us through I was trying to lead, it, lead us through it yesterday. And I found myself like I'd been protesting every single day the week before. I spent the night on the concrete of a of a church across the street after the police in Pasadena took this super militarized action against us. And there's been infighting. Like I just came in to this meeting like a bit exhausted. And so I woke up today with this feeling like, I feel like I actually made the process of us going through this particular campaign planning session difficult Mm -hmm. because I didn't show up rested and I didn't show Mm -hmm. up, you know, I didn't show up on and able to lead in the way that, you know, I would like to. So I was like, I felt like I was snappy and I couldn't even tell you why or what I said, but I just like, I feel like yesterday, the way that things came out my mouth was not the way that I thought, <laughs> not the way they sounded in my head. And it was super uncomfortable, like having to like, kind of just name that preemptively, like guys, I've been thinking about it and da, da, da. And then someone sent me a message and was like, yeah, you were kind of snappy yesterday. And I have this feeling like after I hear that, like, 
something I struggle with is shame. And so I'm like struggling with like, you know, it's okay to make mistakes as you know, when you're doing this work and it's okay. And the important thing is to own it. But anyway, all of this is like, all of this is discomfort, right? Like I did not, when I was little say that this is the kind of thing that I want to do when I grow up. And it's something that I've been like doing because I see the necessity in it and Mm -hmm. constantly growing into it and confronting situations where, you know, not only, not only are you confronting the external societal forces, but also, you know, you're, you're coming up against the way that you, it's internal stuff too, that you're facing as well. And a part of that discomfort is just relationship, right? Like there's a part of me that wonders, like after I'm snappy in a meeting, like, do these people still like me? (laughs) You know, Um, even after I apologize. So there's just a lot of layers, I think, to this. Yeah. I think it's important for people to hear that. Sorry, I know it's taking a long, long time, but I think it's important. I think that in particular is important for people to hear because a lot of people have that same fear of like making a mistake, right? And Mm -hmm. that's what keeps a lot of people from getting active. And so I think it's important for people to know like we are all out here, like (laughs) on some Mm -hmm. learning curve. We all. We all have some oh. moment where we're like, okay, I need to learn how to do that differently. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nah, it's it's super true. Like, I mean, I think about like my own journey and like the thing that like helps me embrace discomfort is understanding that I am not where I was and I am not where I will go. <laughs> right, right. Um, I don't know how much we've talked about this, but y'all, I used to be like hardcore conservative like Mm. hard body. Like, I mean, I was a registered Republican for a number of years. Um, That tends to be my party trick. It's like, hey guys, did you know? Um, Like I was on the board of the college Republicans in college, um, knocked on doors for Bush the second time. Um, When I'm telling you I was conservative, I was very conservative. But like, the reason I say all that is to say that like, I look back to who I was and I'm honest about who who I was and who I what I believed and also who I am now, because it allows me to have like the grace and humility to like understand that, like not only does have I changed, but it means that other people have the capacity for change too, which means that like, I have to push past like, you know, frustrations about like why things aren't further along than what they are. My, I, I get frustrated with people a lot, but then I have to like come to a place in myself where it's just like, sis, like in the same ways that they may not be there in the same ways that they're still waking up and learning, like you had this process happen not that long ago. And so that it's a humbling thing to remember, like, you know, where I'm very much anti-war. I used to be like pro, like very pro just war. Like Mm. we can justify it Mm -hmm. y'all. And that's not the way that I hold like intention for humanity. Like I just, I'm wholesale against it now because of my embrace of, you know, of radical nonviolence and being a part of that tradition mm-hmm. or embracing that tradition. But yeah, that's how I push back my, past my discomfort. It's like, I'm honest about myself with myself. <laughs> no, it doesn't have to be hard. Doesn't have to be this way. Doesn't have to be No, it doesn't have to be this way. 
Okay, so we're going to get into our hard pill segment of the show. This is where we're talking about different challenges and hard truths about doing racial justice work. So, uh, Alicia, what's your hard pill for today? Deep sigh. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My hard pill this week, this episode, is seeing the emergence, reemergence of something that needs to not pop its head up. The whole social justice influencer, social justice influencing. So this is the thing that probably, I mean, based on my, my Twitter search, um, <laughs> first, as per Twitter, it popped up in like 2017 and then it like went underground. Thank you, Jesus. But for whatever reasons, actually, I know what the reasons are. And I'm not going to get into them here, but it is something that's emerging again. It's yeah. where people who are not, you know, deeply involved, deeply committed to justice work or like doing it for the gram. It's mm-hmm. taking pictures with books by thinkers who inform um, movement spaces. It's by mm-hmm. hopping in selfies with notable mm-hmm. figures. It's about like social justice celebrity. And mm-hmm. that ain't it. Like this work is hard. Yeah, It is beautiful, but it is hard. And if you're not yeah. going to put in the work, like let's not create a whole new category of folks who are not about this life. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. What's the difference between like someone who happens to be famous for doing social justice work and a social justice influencer? Sometimes it can be a very thin line. (laughs) 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 Because not everyone who is famous for doing justice work is famous for doing justice work well. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I will not name names. (laughs) Uh, but we all know who you're talking about. I almost said the name. I almost said the name. And if you don't know, you can look at like my Twitter occasionally, as well as Andre and many others to see who we're talking about. Um, but yeah, yeah, there are folks out here like they don't have praxis, right? Like they don't have. When I say praxis, I mean they don't have practices that align with their values and dictate the way that they live in the world. Yeah. Um. And like earlier today, um, I actually like wrote something. Um, online where I said social justice influencing is not a credible thing. People are organizers or activists. If they're out here purporting to be anything else, then you need to call them into alignment with those whose work is actually grounded in justice. There's no room for celebrity on the ground. Yeah. Um, And when I say that, that there's no room for like people to like posture and like act in privilege. Like if you're about this work, then you're about this work. This means you share what you have. It means that you don't like ask for special accommodations unless you have accommodations that are like equitable in nature. Right. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it's one thing to ask for accommodations. Like if you or someone, you know, needs them, but not for the sake of like your comfort. Mm -hmm. Like, nah, that's not what we do. So that is my hard feel for the week is social justice influencing. You know, I'm, I'm just going to talk about this, you know, because I have been wrestling just with my presence online, you know, really? like a lot, like there've been many, many weeks where I'm just like, I want to write like an open letter and be like, y'all, I'm mm. leaving the internet. <laughs> I'm leaving, I'm leaving the social media space for good because one thing is like, I don't feel I feel best when I'm writing about social justice stuff, when I've actually Mm -hmm. spent any time in the streets. Mm -hmm. When those two things are happening at the same time in my life, there is a type of, uh, I don't know how to, how to explain it, but there's just, there's a feeling that makes me feel like, okay, this is right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
a lot of that work is stuff that is not seen on social media because I don't, yeah. I'm not putting that stuff out there. Plus I shouldn't be right. Like if we're mm-hmm. strategizing about how to create change in this specific city or that specific city. Do we don't need pictures? We don't need evidence? Yeah, we're not going to be posting no charts and diagrams online. Uh-huh. Y'all don't see all that. Need a strategy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's, 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 um, you know, that's it's the rumor. It's the, the room where it happens kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so because of that, I've, what I have experienced just as a, a person posting online is that people just don't interact with you as a human being at all. Yeah. You're a brand. And so I realized no matter, no matter how much I try to be a full person on social media, every mm-hmm. time a tweet comes from my account, it's the same as if Wendy's posted something, <laughs> you know, that's how people take it though. Like people interact with it. Like it's Wendy's or Taco Bell or Blockbuster or something like that. They're just like, Oh, that's the social justice brand. You know? Yeah. No. And it's not that it's Andre redacted, redacted Henry. Yeah. <laughs> I know Andre's middle name. It's so, it's so like, and that is a really frustrating part about this. Yeah. And one of the most frustrating parts about it is, you know, there are two things. One is trying to talk to people and to get them involved in some kind of like change effort, but them looking at it in the same way they would if I were promoting like one of my shows, right? Like, are they going to come to Andre's thing and support Andre's thing? And I'm like, y'all, I mean, you know, the revolution is for everyone. It's not Andre's revolution, you know? Yeah. The second thing is trying to coordinate with other folks who also have a lot of people following them. Mm -hmm. And you want to sit down for a meeting to talk about some change effort. And they think it's an interview about their book or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a problem. It's a problem. I mean, honestly, Dre, like I think both of our hard pills are definitely interlinked because if we're in this time where like a culture has moved towards like or there are elements of our culture that have moved towards like influencers and influencing things are about brands. Things are about books. Things are about right. product and consuming those things. Right. And so it makes it really difficult for people to one, have genuine interactions yep. um, despite, you know, the internet kind of being what Brie referred to as like a big living room. Yes. It makes that, it still makes it difficult because people see you as something to be consumed instead of someone to be cared for. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and also the the information that you're trying to disseminate is mm-hmm. is consumed as just content. Right. So like Jonathan Smucker talks about how a lot of people engage in activism in the same way that people engage in fashion. Mm-hmm. And so what we're doing when we retweet or when we you know share that article or we share that meme or whatever, mm-hmm. like we're really just trying to signal to other people who we are, you know, mm-hmm. what, our, what our values are. We're trying to. Um, create an identity and communicate mm-hmm. that identity to other people. And sometimes that takes the place of doing actual work to mm. in, in this power struggle that we call, you know, racism. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, this makes me actually think about something we talked about last season with like the whole social justice or the social media avatars. Yes. Right. Like in this projection of things through this like kind of digital persona Mm-hmm. Now, this is this is something I definitely want to want to chew on and something that I want to definitely something I want to sit with. OK, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm with you on this. You know, when we talk about like social justice 
influencing. <sighs> At the end of the day, like what we're up against, what we're in is a power struggle. We have to mm-hmm. recognize we're in a power struggle. And we have to do those things that, you know, I, I hate that it is that way, but we have to do those things that wield power, you know, mm-hmm. and wage power. And uh, this whole like, I know all the right things to post. <laughs> it ain't it, y'all. <laughs> it's not doing it. It's not. I mean, like, this is part of why we're doing what we do. And, like, not even that we do what we do, what we do, what we do in the way that we do it. Yeah. Like, the reason that, like, this podcast is, like, set up this way, way that it is, it's, like, to push back against, like, these, dare I say, toxic forms of justice seeking. <laughs> like, ask questions of you and of ourselves because like part of like figuring out how to wield power is first interrogating it and we have Mm -hmm. to interrogate how power functions like in ourselves and you know also part of like power like in 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 building power and building capacity is understanding how to be collaborative and so even in something as small as like us doing this new segment with like um, hope notes and hard pills. This is a way of like us, like sharing in communal power, like yeah. us sharing things with one another and not in a way that's like virtual signaling, but in a way that's just like, Hey, like these are the things that affect my heart and the things that affect people that I love or people, things that affect me or just like things that affect people, yeah. um, both positively and in ways that challenge. And yeah, like we're building community because ultimately it's community that pushes back at, at toxic uh, manifestations of power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. If I could go back and do mm-hmm. this again, mm-hmm. like I made a conscious decision in starting Hope and Heart Pills to like, I'm about to memify what I'm doing, right? Like I decided like I'm going to I'm going to try to communicate my message through memes and stuff like that. And sometimes I wonder if I could go back and make like to where I made that decision, like if I would make that same decision again. <laughs> I mean, the beautiful thing about decisions is that you can make more of them. Right, right. And saying that, like, it's true. I mean, like, yeah, there are things that you you did in the past, but like, this is like growth, right? Like, as we see the memification of like really, really serious things, and like, and 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 memification as a way of like highlighting certain types of injustice, like maybe that's not the move anymore. Yeah, and that's that's something that like you got to discern. Yeah, you know, I th- and I think that that goes into like what you're talking about with the social media influence or social justice influencer thing is that I was trying to utilize like something that already existed in culture, a mechanism that already existed in culture mm-hmm. to kind of speak to people. And at first it did get people it did get people's attention, like seeing these hard pill memes every day, you know. And people were responding like with these pill gifts, you know, like they're taking their pills every day and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. is which is great. But then like, you know, the thing, the challenge that I'm naming is like coming against the fact that when you're trying to use culture against itself, uh, mm-hmm. you are, you're, you're picking a formidable opponent that can completely overwhelm your effort. Right. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know a whole lot about Brianna Khan, but, <laughs> Not touching that one. but I feel like, I feel like that is, the the critiques that I've heard of those and those who are who are not familiar, like there's kind of like a convention being put on that's supposed to bring attention to the murder of Breonna Taylor. I and but it's, it's not a it's it's, it's not a, yeah. I mean, there, there are sessions on beauty 
and money and then justice's name last like people can't people can't see like people can't see our faces right now as we talk about it but i think y'all might be able to 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 hear like there's there's some tension you know on my end to be managed about because again i don't know all the details so i'm i'm trying not i'm trying not to be judgmental about it but I've seen the critiques of of the event and they make sense to me. And it makes me think about this thing that I'm that I'm trying to name here. We're like we are when we try to combine like social justice and the culture that we live in as as it stands and try to utilize culture to further social justice causes. It's just tricky as hell. <laughs> but I, but I think in the trickiness, I think that this is the place where questions like liberate us yeah. because they help us engage things more deeply and like in, honestly uncover our motivations, yeah. including motivations that may not actually serve the thing that we say that we are serving. Yeah. Um, that is me both definitely working to not speak about the event that Andre just named. And uh-huh. also way of segmenting or pushing us to segue into asking this episode's questions. Yeah. So one of the things that I adore about our show um, is that we ask a series of questions for reflection during each episode. And, you know, I love it because I'm a professional question asker, but you've also told us that you love it. Um, And so this is something that we're going to keep up with season two. Um, I mean, you'll hear like a number of hosts, like you hear me and Andre and other people on our team, like much like you did last season, maybe a little bit more. But yeah, we're definitely going to keep up the question asking regardless of like who's on air. So for this week, here are a couple of questions that were asked both on air and that you can reflect on on your own. So number one, what was your first protest? What were you trying to disrupt with your words or actions? What was the outcome? Two, how are you engaged in protests during this season of life? What are you wanting to see change by your participation in these things? What are the ways in which these protests are actively working for change? Three, what are your beliefs around voting and democratic processes? Is this the same or different from what you used to believe? And four, how are you working to grapple with the discomfort present in a world in which racial justice and other forms of equity are needed for so many groups? What tools are helping you deal with your discomfort? All right, y'all. That's all I got for questions this week. Y'all only have four. <laughs> we just started a season, so you don't have like 10. <laughs> I don't think we ever actually had that many. Um, but yeah, like, you know, if you want to shoot us a line, like letting us know, you know, what it is that you think, what's been coming up for you with those, like, feel free to do that too. We're interested in seeing like how you're learning and growing alongside us as we learn and grow. Well, thanks everyone again for tuning in for the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. This has been super great and we'll see you next time. Bye y'all. It's been great being back with you. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our incredible patrons. Thank you for being part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. We are grateful for you as a listener, and we love being able to provide conversations with these incredible guests for free without ads. 
If you want to be a part of supporting the work with not only the podcast, but with all Hope and Hard Pills is doing, your best option is to join the Patreon. Look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. You can also follow Andre Henry on Facebook and Instagram at TheAndreHenry. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, aliciatcrosby.com. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time. Yeah.